asked a question last week of what the Holy Spirit does, His role in our lives. And so um, this week we're going to be talking about the Bible. Have you heard of it? Okay, the Bible. Before we jump real deep into it, what makes you trust something? What would make you trust something? There are things that there are things and people that you trust. What makes you trust something? Reliability. That's a that's a big part of it. What would make you trust something? Think about something that you trust. Just holler out. What what gives you trust? What grounds your trust? Where does your trust come from? Love. Loyalty. Truth. So I've got, you know, I've got two different apps on my phone that will take me places, that will give me directions. There's one I trust more than the other one, right? And I was thinking about it this week, and I was thinking, what makes me trust one more than the other? And um, there's a there's an app that Missy has on her phone that I've I've never wanted to use. I'd never heard of it when she downloaded it, and she uses it all the time, and she's been using it a lot this week. And so I was going, oh, maybe I should download it too because, you know, because she trusts it. And so maybe it's, maybe it's an okay thing to have. I was reading an article about trust metrics because I'm a nerd. <laughs> and uh, this article was talking about the different factors that lead to trust. And there's really three categories of things that, that lead to your trust. What makes you trust something? One of them is testing. Think of a trust fall. If I were to do a trust fall and I were to say, you know, if I'm relying on you to catch me and I were to test your your reliability, I were to test to see if I could trust you and I fall and you don't catch me, I don't trust you. You know what I mean? Uh, But if you catch me, my level of trust in you goes up, right? Like, oh, you will catch me. So there's a level of, uh, there's an amount of testing that we do that helps our trust, that builds trust. There's also consistency or reliability. How how much can I trust you? Or if I've if I've trust fallen, you know, ten times and I've trust fallen onto the ground, one of them, that's you know, know, maybe in a pinch I would trust you, but like falling all the way onto the ground would be a problem for me. So, so uh, consistency. So testing, and then consistency, and also transitivity. Yeah, so it's the transitive property, and I'm not good at math, but I learned it in math. It's essentially the idea that if I trust you and you trust her, I can probably trust her. You know what I mean? So if A trusts B and B trusts C, A can probably trust C. So that's what I was saying about Missy's app, is I don't know anything about it, but she's using it all the time. So it's it's probably a, a good app. I would even recommend it to someone else, even though maybe I've never really used it. Because I have a level of trust, because I trust her. So this morning we're going to talk about whether or not you should trust the Bible. We're going to apply those factors to the Bible. Uh, the question that we're actually, the question that was asked, is um, how do we know the Bible is true? Now I want to reframe and modify the question itself, um, but before I do, let's point out three important words. In this question. So I want to talk about knowledge. I want to talk about what it means to know something. Because the funny thing about knowing is you can say that you know something and then it turns out you're wrong. Right? That's happened to you before, I'm sure, if you've been alive. You can think that you know something and it turns out you're wrong. Have you ever been to a magic show? Right? 
Um, and so knowledge, I think, is important, and we value knowledge, but I think certainty is an illusion. You can never really be certain. So I don't want to talk about certainty. I would rather talk about confidence. How much confidence do we have in the Bible? Uh, and then I want to talk about truth. So truth is important, but normally when we talk about truth, we're talking about facts, right? If you were to say, if I were to say something to you, and you were to, you know, ask, is this true? You would be asking, is it, is it a fact? You know, you're an investigator. Is it a fact? The issue, though, is that there is, um, there is more going on with truth than just facts. So, like, if you're reading the Bible and you're just thinking about facts, you're going to be asking the question, did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? And you're largely going to miss the point. Because the point isn't, did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? The, the point is really, well, what is God doing through those things? Right? What is God communicating to us? What, is, what does it mean? So think about the parables. If you're asking the question, well, did that parable happen? It's a story. The answer is no, it didn't happen. It's a story. What, what does it mean? So there's an element of truth that's not locked up in a fact, but is, is contained in the meaning of it. So I want to reframe it, and I just want to ask the question, instead of do we, how do we know that it's true, I want to ask uh, how do we have confidence, or why do we have confidence that would lead us to trust the Bible? That would lead us to trust the Bible. The Bible, that's the third word up there that we need to talk about. The Bible is the most debated and dissected and discussed book ever. Ever. But it's really a collection. It's a collection of 66 books written by about 40 authors in three languages. And these facts should just give you a, an understanding of the the history that's there. I mean, the Bible's been around for for long enough for it to have gone through three languages in terms of, you know how long it takes for a language to die? It takes a while, right? But the Bible's been around for so long that it's gone through basically three generations of languages, all three of which we don't use anymore in the in the same way that they were used then. So even even Greek. When I learned Greek in seminary, I learned Koine Greek. It's not modern Greek. It's not the way that, that Greek is now. Um, and so I had to learn the biblical Greek. It's been around for a long time. It's gone through a lot of authors. It's had a lot of hands. And it's a lot of books at different times, in different places, for different reasons, with different perspectives. That should just, it's impressive. It's impressive that it's lasted and that we still have it and that it has endured. But it's not the most dissected book ever because of how old that it is. It's, it's because we call it Revelation. We call the Bible Revelation. So yes, it's old, but it's, it's, a, it's a hot topic for debate because it's the Word of God. Revelation is, uh, what it means is what's the divine or supernatural disclosure of, uh, to humans of something relating to human existence. Or the world, but really, it, it's a it's an illustration of uh, think of a stage. I'm on a stage. Imagine the stage has a curtain. Re Revelation it paints a picture of God pulling back a curtain and letting you see into something that He knows for a moment, and then closing it again. So He gives you a glimpse of something that's true from His perspective, 
that you would never know or notice if he hadn't shown you. So it's been, you know, the Bible has been given to us by God. It's been, it's, it's, it's God breathed. That's the way that the Bible itself puts it in 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says that, that all scripture, all the writings are God breathed. They're breathed out by God. They're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All of the Bible is coming from God. It's, it's, it's inspired by God. And it's good for you. It's good for you. It doesn't say that it's, 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 all, it's all true facts. It says that it's good for you. It's for you. It's for your good. And it's coming from God. So the big idea here is even though you've had human hands actually writing the things that they're hearing from God, that they're inspired by God, so it ends up being God's book. And if you're not a believer in God, what a, what a perfect thing for you to try to criticize, to, to prove that God's not real or that the Bible's not true. So that's why it's been so debated and dissected for thousands of years. It's ripe for criticism and attack. But let's think about your Bible. So you've got a Bible. Maybe it's in your hands. Maybe it's under the chair that's in front of you. Maybe it's on your phone. You've got a Bible. Let's talk about your Bible, those 66 books. There's an Old Testament. That's the beginning. That's the first maybe two-thirds of the Bible. It deals with God's story of how sin came into the world and his deal with the Jews of how he would protect them and how they would be his special people and how he would bless the world through them. And then the New Testament is God's story of how he blessed the world through them, how God came to offer the world salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Old Testament and New Testament. You might be wondering this question. You might be wondering, well, I understand that, but why do we still use the Old Testament? If we're Christians, we're not Jews, why do we still use the Old Testament? First, because Jesus used the Old Testament. He used them as scripture. And the scripture that he was using was the same one that we have. So the, the Old Testament had been you know, codified and fixed and was a set thing when Jesus was doing his ministry. And he used the Old Testament. So we use it because he did, but also because of what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a yoda or a tittle. It's, that's the Hebrew. The, the smallest marks in Hebrew, not any of them will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So it still matters. Amen? It still matters. So that's why we still have it. Now, about the New Testament, a question that seems to come up a lot. And the reason why I'm doing this, just so you know, is so that we're, we have clarity about the Bible that we're talking about. There are some things that I think people use to distrust the Bible. I want to talk about why we trust the Bible. But first, let me make sure that we're clear on what the Bible is, where it comes from. Because you might distrust the Bible over just a misconception, which is something that we're not clear on. So let's talk about the New Testament. The question that comes up a lot with the New Testament is, um, who picked the books? Why, why these books, right? Why not the Gospel of Thomas? Why not the Infancy Gospel? Why not you know, Mary Magdalene or any of these other uh, books that have come up? Why not those? You know, maybe you've read the Da Vinci Code. 
or you've seen the movie, or something like that. Keep in mind that no one just picked the books. It wasn't like a council just sat down and was like, hmm, you know, I like this one, I like this one, well, let's just vote. And it was all, it was all sorts of stuff. It wasn't like someone was pulling the strings. We tracked the New Testament books back to the apostles, who were uniquely sent out. That's what it means to be an apostle. They were sent out by Jesus to spread the gospel. Those are the, the 12 original, um, you know, plus the addition. And then there was a handful of others like, like Paul and some other people that are called apostles in the, in the New Testament. In John 16, we see that uh, Jesus had given them a unique calling and a special gift from the Spirit so that the teachings of the apostles are blessed by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at that. This is in John 16. It's in your outline. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. Now is not a good time. You, would, you, you couldn't take it. When the Spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth, for he won't speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. And he will declare to you the things that, that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So understand this. The apostles' teachings, in the apostles' teachings, we're still hearing from Jesus. Because Jesus said, look, I got more to tell you, but I can't tell you now. I'll send you the Spirit of truth. I'll send you the Holy Spirit. And he is not going to speak. Uh, he's not going to say what he wants to say. He's only going to say what he hears. And so he will glorify me, and he will declare to you what I've declared to him. So the apostles are still communicating Christ's message to us, even after his ascension. And so that's why the New Testament is full of uh, books that are linked directly to or very closely to the apostles. When the Christians in the early church received a letter from an apostle, it was a big deal. You could imagine, right? You could imagine you're Christians, there's some persecution going on, and you're just trying to live out your faith, and then you get a letter. Someone delivers a letter, and it's from Peter. That's a big deal. That would be a big deal. So they would immediately read it, and then they would immediately have scribes start to copy it, and then to disseminate it, and spread it around, and make sure that, that other people have access to this thing that that Peter said, because Peter's an apostle and the apostles are still carrying the message of Jesus. So it's a big deal. But the popularity of those letters and those books, they sparked all kinds of fakes. You can imagine someone trying to jump on the bandwagon and say, well, I have this letter from the apostle, what's the apostle's name? Nathaniel, you know, and uh, here's what it says, you know, and and, you know, here, I, you know, and now I'm now I'm in control of something that people are are looking for. So it sparked a lot of fakes. But as you could also imagine, those fakes were never really embraced in the church. They never really gained traction. You don't find any of the early uh, canons taking any of that stuff seriously. So they were just floating around because because it, people would would take them, but they were never embraced. They were never accepted because they weren't true. They were not genuine. Eventually, heresies ro rose up, and church leaders officially named the authoritative books of the New Testament in 397 at the Council of Carthage. Um, but those books had been long established. So that's what I want to make sure you understand. That like, it's not like the Da Vinci Code, where somebody's, somebody's pulling the strings and wants it to be like this, and 
Well, why not this? Well, why not this? Well, because they were fake, and everybody knew it, and everybody knew it. So that's why your Bible has 66 books. You're welcome. That was free. But should you trust it? That's the question. Should we have confidence in the Bible? I think we have to start by recognizing that the Bible has endured thousands of years of wars and disasters and famine and critics and exiles and being outlawed and being burned. The Bible has been through all of that. It, how it survived the Babylonian exile, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. How it survived Roman persecution, how those letters survived Roman persecution, that's a miracle. Okay, so it's been around for a very long time. And so we get part of our confidence in the Bible from the process that it's gone through. It's been through a lot. And, you know, it's like my dad says, the proof's in the pudding, right? It's been around, it's endured, and it sure looks like God is preserving it. It sure looks like there's, there's a divine hand that's been carrying it all the way through, that has brought it here today, looking exactly the way that it does. Your Bible has been studied critically. It's been debated for more than 1,600 years. That's a long time. It's made it through the heresies, the false writings. It's made it, it's made it through all kinds of stuff. And then through all of that, it endures and it continues to change people's lives. That gives us confidence because it gives us consistency. Remember, what builds confidence in us? Consistency, reliability, that we, that we, it doesn't change, it hasn't changed. That gives us some confidence in the truth of the Bible. But, Pastor Aaron, hasn't the Bible been changed and edited? Is it the same? How do we know that it's the same Bible? How do we know when I read First Peter that that's actually what Peter wrote? Well, first of all, it's not, right? Yours is in English, so let's just be clear, right? He didn't write it in English. But the content is the same. We have a lot of confidence in that. It's not hard to imagine that the apostles wrote letters and things uh, like that, these books that the early Christians cared a lot about. But if those letters were copied, so you get your church, the little church gets a letter from Peter, and you guys start copying it down, right? And then you start passing it around. It's not hard to imagine that something would get changed, that, you know, so someone would make a mistake and would copy it wrong, and then it would start going out. Uh, but... There are so many copies being made, and there are so many copies going out that there's that there's not our sample size is not small. We have we have lots. So let's talk about manuscripts because when you're evaluating the reliability of an ancient text, the gold standard of reliability is always the number of existing extant. That the official word is extant. The the extant. Uh, ancient manuscripts. So let's get nerdy for a second. Look at a chart. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So here's what you're looking at. These are ancient texts over here. Uh, the author and the ancient text and the date that it was written. And then the earliest copies of those books that we have and the gap that's between the time that it was written and the earliest copies that we have, and then the numbers of copies that we have. So notice that for a typical 
um, ancient manuscript or for a, a typical ancient work, uh, we don't have a lot of existing copies. You know, 8, 7, 20. There's a, a lot of the Iliad, which is sort of the, the Greek Bible. Um, but we don't have a lot of copies for most things. And then the gap that exists between when they were originally written and the earliest copies that we have is usually pretty big. I mean, like right around a thousand years. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, if I wrote something and it gets copied and copied and copied, and then, you know, a thousand, you know, three thousand years later, people go and they're looking for the earliest copies. And the earliest copy they have, they know, was from a thousand years after it was actually written. Well, historically, those are reliable manuscripts. That's, that's reliable. Now look at the Bible. Look at the New Testament in particular. This is a little bit dated. We actually have more than 5,800 New Testament manuscripts. We have thousands of very old manuscripts from the Old Testament, like the ones that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a manuscript from Mark's Gospel that dates between 100 and 200 years after it was originally written, which is remarkable, which is crazy. So just in terms of your confidence level, be confident that the Bible has not been changed because we have more than 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament that give us confidence that the Bible hasn't changed. And that's number two. 5,800 plus extant New Testament manuscripts give us confidence that the Bible hasn't changed. So there's reliability, there's confidence. It's the same thing. Because what we can do is we can take all of those old manuscripts, we can take all of those old pieces, we can put them together and see that they're saying the same thing. We can take all of the little pieces that we found from all these different generations and we can find ones that, that match over and we can say, yeah, they all they say the same thing. And the ways that they're different, the ways that they've changed, uh, I think there's a 99.5% um, you know, exact overlap. But the ways that they're different, they're not remarkable. They're, they're, they're almost not not noteworthy. And the ones that are, are actually footnoted in your Bible. So if you read your Bible and you look down at the footnotes, like at the end of Mark 16, for example, most Bibles say that the last part of Mark 16 is not in the most ancient. It's not in the oldest manuscripts. No one's hiding stuff, right? We have all of these manuscripts that give us a lot of confidence that the Bible has never changed, that it's not changed. Okay, so up next, we're going to talk about archaeology. So I want to go outside that, the Bible itself and ask, what do other disciplines say about the, the confidence that we can have in Scripture? And I'm not an archaeologist. Surprise! Um, but I know one. And so Wes Houston, who's a, a member of the church, and he's getting his Ph.D. in biblical archaeology, he's going to come and he's going to spend about five to 10 minutes talking to you about why archaeology. Again, we're going back to tests, right? If I'm going to test my confidence in the Bible, can I really trust this? I should be able to test it by looking outside the Bible and finding, finding verification. So Wes, come up and, and share with us your expertise. 
Glad you're applauding now. You may not want to when I'm finished. Yeah, somehow I'm going to compress uh, 3,000-some years of uh, history in, in, in the Bible into uh, five-plus minutes. And <laughs> this will be fun. Here we go. So uh, we put up the first picture. I don't know why we're getting a lot of feedback. Is this mic on? So uh, <clears throat> I know the light washes this out. Oh, I got this little toy up here maybe, Tony? All right, we'll do that. How's that? We have a little toy here that's supposed to work. How's it turn on? Oh, look at that. Magic. So this probably just looks like a picture of some dry land here. This, I'm standing on Mount Nebo. This is the part, uh, point where God brought Moses uh, after the um, wanderings and showed him the promised land. This is what he saw, almost literally what you're seeing here. Uh, we're aimed a little, so if I'm with you, I'm aimed a little to the right or tad to the north. That is the Jordan River coming on down through here, and it will end in the Dead Sea right over here in just a second. This is Jordan. I'm standing in the land of the Moabites. Amon is up to the right. And right across here, you can barely see it because of a hazy day, but you can see that structure right there. That's Jericho. Uh, we get the next picture real quick. And now I've turned to the left a little bit. You can see Jericho just a tad better. Again, Dead Sea down this way. And right up here near the top, you can almost not make it out today. On a clear day, you can see it. That's Jerusalem. Uh, if, can we go back to the first one for just a second? So one I wanted to point out to you here is this uh, odd-looking hunk of big dirt right there is the ruins of the city of Sodom. We're going to talk about that for a second. On the edge right here, this mess going on right in here, this is Tel Kephrine, and this would be Gomorrah. And then the uh, two of the other cities, uh, Zeboim and I forgot the fourth one, but they're over here. And then Zoar, where Lot ran to, is off to the left. Um, but this little piece of dirt, is creating quite the uh, uproar in the uh, world of archaeology uh, because for, I don't know, hundreds of years, a lot of people believe Sodom is fiction, uh, didn't exist, or when it got destroyed, it got obliterated to the point where you'd find no evidence of it. And uh, the, the story of uh, Sodom in the Bible is heavily discounted by its critics. Uh, in 2005, Dr. Collins, who uh, uh, the Silvers know quite well, um, did a lot of, he's been excavating out in this area for years, started doing a lot of research and, and realized that that hill of dirt that everybody was driving by fit the ge geographical uh, description of where Sodom would have been located, started excavating, and now 14 years later, we've got National Geographic, uh, just did a special on it, maybe you saw it was on about a month ago. Um, a new Bible atlas is coming out uh, to accurately show where it's located and so on. We're, we're excited about that. Um, we're going to drill down then. So what, what I wanted you to see before we leave here, so Moses is standing on this spot, and he's looking out over everything that God promised him. And the next thing Moses does is he brings, uh, you know, the, uh, the exiles, if you will, the slaves, how you want to call them, the Jews, from Egypt. He brings them down, and they camp on this side of the Jordan before they go over to Jericho. They would have camped right in front of the ruins of Sodom, 
Uh, you'll recall in the story of uh, Joseph, when his father Jacob dies, they mourn for him and they take him back uh, to be buried uh, with uh, Abraham and so on. And they take him back through this area right in here and they actually have a kind of a mourning ceremony uh, for him on this side. It would have been, again, visible. The ruins of Sodom would have been visible to them. And then when uh, Joshua takes the army across, he was just about right in here uh, with the army when they crossed the Jordan. Their back would have been to the ruins of uh, Sodom. So we'll go ahead and go to slide three. This is what it looked like uh, a few years back, uh, the year I was there. Odd looking. Um, how many of you have ever seen a forest fire after the fact or uh, an earthquake or a tornado is another one? where you go into the area and all you see is the driveway, the fireplace, chimney, and maybe a foundation wall. Uh, the rest is covered in ash. That's what you see when you do archeological work. You dig through all these layers of dirt, you're gonna come across the foundations of things. This um, piece is the high part of Sodom. This is the, the king's complex would have been up here, all walled in. The bottom was all walled in, and the actual city of Sodom goes out around those trees, this flat area right in through here, and comes back around to this road and right in this way. If they were going to go to Gomorrah, they went down this road literally and around the corner about a 5K. If you're a 5K runner, three miles, whatever, that's a Gomorrah. Uh, the, the king bear and his uh, complex was up here. The gateway area where Lot met the angels uh, is right in, in this area, and they would have had a road that continued through here and, and literally hooked around and came up to the, the gateway area. Uh, go ahead to the next slide. So I was fortunate uh, to be able to excavate. I don't know who this is. Uh, he, he looks like one of Rommel's tank commanders. Uh, I, I was fortunate to excavate the area where Lot met the angels in the gateway area. It was quite the experience. The city had huge uh, defensive walls. Uh, very high. The towers were at least 50 feet. The walls probably 30 or more. They were built out of mud brick. You, you read in Egypt how they made brick and straw and all those. This is, this is a mud brick. Weighs about 25 pounds. They used about 2 million of them uh, to put the fortification around Sodom. Sodom was the biggest city by far in the southern Levant. Um, and all of it got destroyed in an instant. We're going to talk about that in a second. You can go to the next slide. So this is the gateway complex. If we don't have time today, I've got a ton of pictures. I can show you the whole thing. Where I'm standing, uh, uh, it's not even going to be noticeable here. In the picture, if you're looking at it at my house, this is ash. There is a layer of ash a meter and a half high covers the entire Jordan Valley, all of it. And if you read chapter 19 in Genesis, you'll see that God didn't just destroy Sodom. He destroyed the cities of the plain, including Jericho, and all of the vegetation, animals, everything. The, the fire that destroyed Sodom was so intense, it burnt off the topsoil. Nothing grew for over 400 years in that valley. And you remember when Lot went down there, he went down because it was a real lush valley. Uh, the destruction was something. Go ahead, next slide. I don't want to hold you all up. So... Here, there's a rim of a pot coming out, out of the ground. And what I want you to see is the ash. It's, it's uh, everywhere. When, see, I think we have one more picture, or is that the last one? Maybe that's the last one. Okay. When 
when Sodom got destroyed, uh, rhetorical question, anybody know how hot they make a fire when they cremate you? 1,400 degrees roughly. Some will go 1,600, but somewhere in that range, 1,400, 1,600 degrees cremation. It, it, you have bones left, but uh, pretty much you're, you're toast. Um, Sodom got hit with a heat uh, greater than 23,000 degrees. Uh, I've even heard it described as almost twice the temperature of the sun in an instant. So you went from ambient temperature to this really high uh, temperature and back in an instant. It was an explosion that would have looked like 10 of uh, 911s, where you saw those buildings come down, and then what happens is all that ash goes up. This one set a plume of ash, debris, and human remains, and everything that would be mixed in there with it from the entire valley, up well over five miles into the sky, and for months rained back down again, uh, creating uh, that level that you saw me standing in. So when you read about the next day, Abraham looked and saw this plume of smoke, it was a plume of smoke the width of that valley floor I showed you at the first picture. So I don't want to keep you any longer, but I brought something if you can bear with me just a second. Thank you. I brought my assistant with me this morning. By the way, if you didn't know it, khaki and blue is the uniform of the day today. <laughs> so what I have here... I wish I had more. I'd pass some out to all of you. This is ash from Sodom. Uh, in fact, I had the pastor uh, and Bill was back there. Put the finger in there for a second. The fire was so hot that it just about turned us to dust. This is a super fine flour feeling mixture. It didn't leave much. When you're excavating Sodom, you're finding little bits and things and pieces and you're pretty much uh, finding the foundation in the ground. It, it blew off everything else. Um, well, I, 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 there's so much I can tell you. I won't do that today. This is, this should give you some confidence. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. And that's what he said to Abraham about Sodom. And when the Bible talks about Sodom being destroyed, it was, and we've got the proof of it today. This is just the, what I couldn't bring with you is debris that we have brought back and sent for testing. We've had carbon-14 testing done on some of the rock samples and things in order to determine the temperature. We know the direction. That it, it, it effectively, it was a giant airburst that uh, terminated the north end of the Dead Sea. And uh, I'll give you a lot more, but we don't have time today. But it terminated the end of the Dead Sea and destroyed not only the city and the people in it, but all of the life and vegetation. If, if this doesn't give you confidence that God's word is true, I don't know what will. You know, we had Sunday school lesson this morning, Lazarus and the rich man. And, uh, you know, the rich man wanted uh, God to send him back up so he could tell his brothers. And what did God say? Even if I sent someone from the dead, they wouldn't believe. But as followers of Christ, the Bible is as real as it, it, you just... Anyway, if you don't have confidence in, in the Bible today... and. And if you don't know the Bible or you're new to Christianity or whatever, get in there, pick something and start reading. God's word. You want to hear God speak to you? I told the class this morning, have somebody read a verse of scripture. That's God speaking to you.
Archaeology. Yeah. Yeah. I I can imagine being in the Holy Land. I can imagine being on a site. And there's no way I would pull off the Indiana Jones that Wes pulls off. I just... It look, looks great. I would look like a child at Halloween. In any case, we've got confidence. We've got confidence. Um, let's talk about trust in the Bible. Has the Bible proven itself to be consistent? Yeah, yeah. You know, consistent in terms of its content. We know that all of these manuscripts are giving us confidence that we still have the original information. Okay, we've got confidence in its content. We've got confidence in uh, in its very uh, presence. You know what I mean? That it's that it's endured. That gives us confidence in the Bible. Um, does it pass the test if we test it? If we do a trust fall into the Bible, does it does it does it catch us? And the answer is yes. And with archaeology, the interesting thing is that archaeology is never going to prove the Bible, folks. We can't prove the Bible. Okay. Um, that's why they call it faith. Okay, but we can have more confidence in it because as we go, we keep finding things like the ruins at Sodom that show us something that everyone said is just not real. Everyone's been saying it's it's not real, and then we find it, and they go, "Okay, so maybe it's real." Now it doesn't prove that the entire Bible and the entire story of the Bible is true, but it sure is a good trust fall. It sure is a good trust fall. There are good reasons we can have confidence in the Bible. And the only other significant factor we talked about at the beginning was the transitive property. So if you don't trust the Bible, let me ask you this. Do you trust somebody who trusts the Bible? Let that, let that increase your confidence that what the Bible is saying is true, that what God speaks through the Bible is meaningful for you. There are good reasons to trust the Bible. So maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, okay, so maybe the Bible's not totally made up, right? Maybe it's not totally made up. Maybe it's got some, some, some good things here and there. But does it mean that I have to believe the whole thing is entirely true? Do I have to believe the whole Bible because you're able to show me this or that or this or that? Do I have to believe the whole thing? Yes. Yes. What about the miracles? Yes. What about the, the wild stories like Jonah in the whale and, uh, and God holding the sun still for an extra day? The burning bush, the parting of the sea, the flood. What about the wild stories? Do I have to believe those? Yes. Yes. Why not? So here's my question to you. Why not? For me... I've experienced God to be a great, big God. I've experienced God to be a great, big God. And I don't have any problem believing in, in miracles. I don't have any problem believing the stories. I don't have any problem believing them as fact. I say, why not? He's God. What do you want? If the Bible was all predictable stories, it'd be like, where's God? So I don't have any problem with that. Not at all. It doesn't bother me a bit. But we can look at a story like Jonah in the whale 
And we can say, okay, you know, I don't have any problem believing the facts, but I also know that that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not, is not the facts of, you know, who was Jonah and where was he and, and where is Nineveh. The facts are not the point of the story. The point of the story is what happens when we defy God's will. The point of the story is the meaning. What, it, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about ourselves? What does it tell us about our relationship with God? That's why that story exists. Now maybe we can go and we can, and we can dig into the ground and we can do a trust fall and find Nineveh. And we know where Nineveh is. So maybe we can, we can do a trust fall and find Nineveh. But guys, the point of the story of Jonah is not to find where the ruins of Nineveh are. It's what, it, what is God telling you about him and you and how to relate to one another. That's, that's the point. So hear me out. And I'm talking really to anyone in here who is either not a believer or you're young in faith and you find it hard to believe some of the things in the Bible. If the wild stories of the Bible are stopping you from believing the Bible, look at the meaning. Look at what they're communicating in terms of the meaning. Let God teach you about himself through those stories and then consider Jesus with fresh eyes. Start with what it means, let him break through to your heart to communicate something to you, and then as your faith grows, I bet you, like me, won't have any problem being confident in the Bible from beginning to end, even the wacky stuff. Amen? For the rest of you, read your Bible. Read your Bible. It's God's revealed words to you. It's how he presents himself to us through its authors. It's for your good. All, all scripture is God-breathed. It is coming from God, and it is profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. It's for, your, it's for you. It's like Wes was saying. It's really God's radio station. Whenever you turn him on, whenever you open it up, he's speaking. He's speaking. So if you believe the Bible, if you believe it, if you've got confidence in it, let God speak to you. Go home, read your Bible. Let's pray.